I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network brought to you by Interact. Today, I'm speaking with Rana Sarkar, Council General of Canada in San Francisco. Previously, Rana served as President and CEO of the Canada-India Business Council, as well as National Director at KPMG. Thank you for taking the time to join me by phone today. Great to be here. Awesome. So I want to begin by talking about what a normal day for you as Consul General in San Francisco was like before the pandemic. For our listeners who aren't aware of your day-to-day, can you fill us in a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that you know, prior to uh, all of this breaking out, um, I, I do what uh, a lot of Consul Generals do, uh, which our, our primary activity is uh, has been in the U.S., has been uh, on trade and trade facilitation. Um, and of course, we uh, have uh, operations on the consular side, which support Canadians who are traveling, traveling abroad, and also for the Canadians who uh, reside here. Um, and we, on, on the political outreach side, we've, uh, we're obviously uh, very closely uh, uh, connected to our, uh, our governor's offices here in the various state and um, and federal officials here who are who are making decisions every day that, that sort of connect Canadians. But uh, uh, but to be honest, I mean, I, I think that a lot of the activity here, because uh, San Francisco particularly is the you know one of the global epicenters for the major uh, tech revolutions that are taking place, has uh, has had outside importance for Canada and for a variety of reasons. We had to kind of offensively be out here to make sure that Canadian uh, companies and ecosystems were connected to stuff that's happening in Silicon Valley, you know, the $5 trillion of activity. Uh, and also defensively, I think that there's, you know, as, as we've lived through the last year and, you know, tech clash, as it was known, um, and the rise of super platforms, for instance, that have uh, outsized um, uh, political and economic roles these days, um, we've had to devote a lot of our attention to what we would call tech diplomacy. And so tech diplomacy, some call it. And uh, and that has uh, uh, and often been about you know sort of nurturing the ecosystem between venture finance and uh, the major uh, companies, but also sort of the startup ecosystems and the thousands of uh, Canadian companies, entrepreneurs, and venture financers who flow through the valley. And sort of there's a there's a real um, back and forth that that has uh, sort of developed, and you know that's it's been the case for over 40 years, but I think that's really intensified in uh, probably the last few years as a result of the growth of uh, the Canadian tech ecosystems up to scale. And uh, and so that has been facilitating those uh, relationships, uh, you know, and that, that often is a quite a, uh, a diverse set of activities. And so, uh, you know, we're fairly full agenda. We, you know, start off uh, fairly early in the morning. It's California. Uh, you know, folks uh, like to get an early start because, of course, the East Coast, which dictates still a lot of uh, our timelines, um, you know, is up uh, a lot earlier. So we're we're up and active by by eight a.m. And you know, I've got responsibility to get some kids to school and uh, uh, got to you know make sure that uh, our 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 teams are on point for the activities that we have. Uh, but a lot of that was, uh, you know, meeting with our stakeholders, making sure that uh, sort of the program activity that uh, that we're, we're we're having often will have uh, delegations of folks, uh, sort of tech leaders or um, uh, senior industry folks that are through town. Uh, we have a lot of what uh, people 
uh, used to call tech tourism, sort of folks that are coming through to, you know, to have a look at, you know, what the ecosystem down here looks like, what, you know, might be coming down their way. And so uh, making sure those conversations are facilitated. So, and, uh, and in the evening, there's uh, no shortage of, uh, uh, of activity in terms of there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, social interaction in terms of, um, you know, being out there. Uh, often dinners, uh, but, you know, but a lot of hikes as well. Like, I mean, so we've got different types of, you know, forms of social engagement out here in the Valley and, uh, uh, you know, getting out and, you know, rather than sort of taking a coffee meeting or, you know, we'd often sort of, you know, take a walk around with folks. Um, and, uh, and so there's been, so it's, it's slightly different from, from say a New York cadence, but, uh, but, but extremely busy and, and very interesting all the time. So enter COVID-19. What now? What 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 are your days made up of uh, today and over the last uh, few weeks? Like in many ways, uh, San Francisco uh, has been uh, ahead of the curve in the United States on this, in the sense that uh, we've had a citywide um, uh, shelter in place um, and uh, an emergency sort of declared rather early in the month. And, uh, and so uh, the, the, the kudos to our city leaders here in San Francisco, but also uh, Governor Newsom taking this very seriously. Silicon Valley, because of you know the connection points to Asia, uh, particularly in the supply chains to Asia, have been kind of uh, on, on top of this as well in the sense that uh, you know many valley leaders were early out um, and declaring this is you know a potentially extraordinary event and a disruptive event. Um, but one of the things, you know, the, that really woke us up to, you know, the, the, the difference in cadence. And, you know, of course, you know, I, you know, spoke a lot about uh, the commercial activity and a lot of the, uh, the work that we're, we're doing with, with companies out here. But there's another part of activity that has always been a kind of a substrate of, of the work that we're doing down here. And that's emergency preparedness. And, you know, it was part of the the job that I, I didn't know a lot, lot about before I got into it, but I, I learned very quickly. And a lot of the relationships that uh, we have here with uh, emergency preparedness at the state level and also the cities. And a lot of that, of course, you can imagine is around earthquake preparedness, which, of course, um, you know, statistically is likely coming our way at some stage. We've had not had a big one in this region since 1989, obviously, but also the forest fires, which uh, if you've you know, most people have uh, followed the California fires issues. Um, and as a result of that, we've, you know, really developed a, a, a strong uh, preparedness uh, schedule for um, a, a lot of our uh, teams and activities. And so, and as you know, the government of Canada has, uh, in global affairs, this should be commended in, in many ways as being really ahead of the, uh, the pack in terms of uh, being able to um, uh, to gather resources very quickly, respond to emergencies, um, and has a has a pretty good uh, center of activity around those things. And so, when uh, COVID, uh, our, our one of our first big uh, uh, shocks, as it were, was uh, when uh, we had um, uh, the Grand Princess, uh, which was a, uh, a cruise line by Holland America that uh, had uh, a number of, uh, of symptomatic COVID-positive uh, passengers that uh, arrived in port. And uh, a, a long time ago, it seems like these every day is like a, a, a dog year these days in, in, the, in COVID times. But it was just over three weeks ago, and uh, and so our team mobilized, and you know, literally overnight, and uh, worked 
for about four days, 24-7, to, um, to help uh, with an uh, assisted departure, which meant an evacuation of the 235 Canadians that were on board that vessel. And uh, in Canada, you know, we've got this extraordinary uh, emergency response capability, which has effectively been acting since the beginning of this year, you know, first starting with the Ukrainian crash in in, uh, Tehran and uh, then with the Wuhan evacuation after that, and then with the Diamond Princess in in Tokyo, Yokohama. Um, And then we had the, uh, the Grand Princess. And so this team has been up and operating, and uh, there's an Ottawa component to it, which uh, you know worked very closely with uh, with our team on the ground and with uh, uh, State Department and uh, and the Cal EPS team down here, um, which uh, worked extraordinarily effectively to you know ensure the uh, the departure of those Canadians uh, back to Canada, and uh, and so that we thought that. You know that was an extraordinary uh, uh, bit of effort, and you know, but just as that that uh, that ended, we all went into a shelter in place, and that meant our teams were working remotely. Um, you know, we needed to, like everybody else, um, find a very quick shift in cadence um, from operating really intensively uh, in our office settings, having full teams up and running, to um, all of a sudden having to learn to work in this remote fashion while serving the interests of Canadians. And, you know, at that time, you know, as you, as you well know, we had many Canadians that were uncertain about uh, either the, the closure of the border and uh, their ability to get back to Canada. And uh, we needed to help facilitate those activities. And so we're now sort of running a kind of a full bore consular effort. And uh, we still have folks in the office um, that are working on that, and uh, yet most of our team is now um, uh, located uh, remotely, and uh, we're working very closely with our colleagues uh, in in Los Angeles, particularly uh, under the leadership of uh, Consul General Zabe Sheikh down there, and uh, and then also with Seattle and Denver and our our entire network of of, uh, of consuls um, out here in uh, the United States. Uh, to both uh, provide these services physically, but also to work virtually to 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 make up where uh, teams are falling short. So it's a it's a real it's a big effort. But uh, like everybody um, else who's uh, working in these trenches these days, it's uh, it's a necessary one. Wow, there's like so much great stuff there. So so the first thing I want to talk about is the culture of emergency preparedness. That's very interesting to me. And I was, um, we're of course taping this call four days um, prior to it being released. So uh, listeners should bear this in mind uh, when and as we cite numbers. But um, the California numbers um, right now are about 69,000 confirmed cases. Sorry, in the entire U.S. and uh, 3,166 confirmed cases in California with 67 deaths. Now, compare that with Canada. We're sitting at about uh, 3,385 confirmed cases with only 35 deaths. So uh, more cases, but fewer deaths in Canada. Uh, And of course, you know, California's population is actually larger than than our entire countries. But but you uh, is do you attribute uh, some of the success that uh, California is seeing uh, in terms of their containment efforts uh, tied to this culture of emergency preparedness? 
I think so. And I think that, you know, when the, 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 the post stories of, of this crisis are often written, I think that the, the distinguishing characteristics, when you look at jurisdictions that got out ahead uh, of one another, and I, I know that you know this from your work uh, in the field, uh, um, will probably be uh, jurisdictions that had some level of um, connection to a prior incident, either or, you know, uh, you know, with with SARS or with MERS or um, name the the, uh, the 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 pandemic um, in prior eras, but uh, uh, but also uh, a broader based sense of emergency preparedness, and and of course the capacity that goes along with that. And so, I, I think that in the California instance, I think that you've got like you you mentioned this is a, a state of forty million, and there are many states here. There are you know, obviously, Northern California in the Bay Area, which has a distinct culture and has a set of emergency issues that it's prepared for, but also Southern California, which, because of the population concentration, LA and LA County, you have, you know, lots of very complex public health issues that need to be dealt with um, in a slightly different way and with different capacities involved. So, Mary Garcetti down in LA County is uh, is dealing with probably a slightly different. Um, set of challenges that uh, London breed here in San Francisco as mayor and very hard in terms of uh, ensuring that, you know, the, the various responses are coordinated, but they are probably slightly dis- different responses. Um, I think that the other um, uh, key number in some of these uh, these stats that we're looking at, I know that you talked about this as well, is that the amount of testing that's taking place. And so California has probably been a bit ahead of the pack in terms of testing, but um, that the, the underlying number of tests still has to go up. And um, and I think they're finding something like one in four tests is coming back positive. Um, their underlying rate of growth, and by the time this comes out, I think the numbers will will be sort of doubling over three or four days versus six or seven, which was the earlier estimate. That will be the big test for the system. So I think that right now we're in a kind of eye of the storm situation where everyone is um, preparing, getting the PPP, PPE um, set up, making sure that ventilators and hospital beds, but we are not at the kind of, you know, certainly at the steepest edge. And, you know, if New York is is there today, then, you know, we are likely, by the time this podcast comes out, a, a couple of days away from that. So I also, you mentioned the um, network of consul generals and the types of discussions uh, that uh, you all are having. Can you give us some, some insight into the flavor of those discussions um, across the different U.S. cities? In a country as vast as the United States with um, very different public policy responses by state as it is right now, uh, where certain state governors are are reacting very differently in terms of um, um, overall business shutdowns, uh, shelter in place orders. Um, you know, you have a different um, set of rules, for instance, in the state of Florida or the state of Georgia than you would in places like California and New York. Um, so I think that the, the, there's a lot of information sharing that's taking place uh, between our consulate networks. There's, um, everyone's put up their hand in order to you know, offer assistance to consulates that are under in terms of their requirement for services. Um, there's a, a lot of 
questions about um, the border, of course, which um, has knock-on effects for you know ensuring that uh, uh, the supply chains remain intact, that uh, you know Canada, you know all of our food requirements to all of the uh, the trade that takes place um, that is uh, deemed essential. Um, sort of make sure that that continues. And so there, are, as what I would say, is there's a lot of conversations about edge cases um, in terms of, uh, you know, what is deemed an essential service, whether uh, people crossing the border um, on, require, just if they're transiting through the border, require um, uh, to be sheltered in place or for 14 days under quarantine, if they're just transiting, I mean, questions like this that, you know, don't have an evolved public policy response right now because we're dealing with it in real time. So there's a lot of those forms of conversation that are taking place. Um, there's also, I think, a really important conversation about how to manage ourselves um, and what sorts of advice that we're giving to Canadians and our teams as we go forward. And, uh, and uh, you know, I know that this is a, a subject conversation on this podcast but it's you know how you maintain your own team's health and uh you know your own team's uh sort of work style and effectiveness and mental health through the form of this uh you know as we go through the kind of eye of the storm as it were and so those are all ongoing conversations and very supportive conversations well that's great to hear and you know i want to talk a little bit about the closure of the canada u.s border First time ever uh, for this uh, to happen, and it's uh, closed except to essential traffic. Um, just, you know, asking you to put a bit of a crystal ball in front of you. Do you predict any medium or long-term consequences to the work you're doing in San Francisco uh, as a result of the border closure? I think that the fact that it could close a border, and this is a broader sort of conversation about the, you know, where we are in the kind of, um, in our kind of evolution of, of globalism, as it were, and sort of the global trading order and the global balance of power in the world. And I think that, you know, one of the outcomes from this crisis will be a kind of a, a reevaluation of borders mean in real terms. And, uh, uh, and so this idea that people will have seen in their lifetime a border being closed means that people will be aware that Europe and other parts of the world where we've gotten used to the borderless world. Um, this is a, a roar back of the old days of having borders and having borders with real enforcement. And so I think that we are going to have to come to new terms over what borders mean. But I think in terms of the Canada-US border, because you know we've also in that step of closing the border made it very clear, and it was a you know, mutual decision and a mutual announcement, which I think was a very successful one, around making sure that it was uh, open for essential traffic and essential trade. And I think that that idea, and there was also a a 30-day uh, sunset on that border closure, which was also very important. And so this idea that, uh, you know, the, that we'll have to reevaluate in 30 days and where we are. And so I think that, you know, when we come out to the other side of this as well and when people decide you know their own patterns of life and how they'd like to 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 uh, sort of live their lives and i think that you know the border will you know be a uh, a, a slightly bigger issue 
um, in their minds. But, uh, but you know, if I recall sort of, and I don't want to overdraw the analogy to 9-11, though, is that uh, um, people also have a habit of forgetting after a period of time when there's a, a new normal starts to emerge. And, uh, and so I think that the, the period that we're seeing with the border still, you know, is, a, is, is something yet to be determined depending on how long the crisis goes. But um, hopeful that, you know, when this is all said and done, we'll, uh, um, a lot of our relationships in the United States, and particularly with states, will actually be strengthened. And, and that's a kind of, you know, uh, a counterintuitive, you know, supposition to be making right now. But, um, but I think that the, the helpfulness and the kind of people thinking about uh, in the United States particularly and sort of a lot of U.S. companies and a lot of U.S. people living down here as they, you know, think about Canada and they think about, you know, uh, what we're doing in Canada, our, you know, capacity for responding to crises, how well we've done in terms of uh, our public health infrastructure, how well we've done in terms of our public infrastructure. That just reinforces a, a pretty solid narrative in their eyes. And so I think this will be a, you know, we'll... Uh, there's a there's an opportunity in this context of this crisis to actually strengthen the relationship. Well, I love that. You know, I hadn't really thought about it optimistically and hopefully uh, like that. Uh, you know, I must say, you know, for me, I was kind of imagining myself, you know, with grandchildren at my feet, you know, fondly telling tales about how I used to go over to Detroit from Windsor with nothing but a student card, you know, and I would take a city of Windsor transit bus. But, you know, I think what you're saying is, is it may be a slightly more document-rich experience um, post uh, this pandemic, uh, just just as it was, you know, post 9-11, but that uh, the the bonds of neighbor uh, will be stronger. I, you know, and and I think that one of the other facets of this crisis, and we're not quite there yet because we're in the kind of uh, threshold of, uh, of dealing with the just very immediate you know, uh, public health challenge of this, but there's a, you know, in, in terms of testing, monitoring, and, you know, enforcement of quarantine, um, all of the things that the WHO says that we need to do in order to see off this pandemic, but also to see off future pandemics that, you know, no doubt will come after this is, you know, our sense of monitoring and the use of technology in that monitoring exercise. And this, again, actually ties in very relevantly to a lot of the the activity that we've been um, doing down here in terms of, um, you know, dealing with with big tech, dealing with technology more generally around um, surveillance and uh, the way in which uh, the, the culture of technology um, impacts um, civil liberties and and also, you know, has has knock-on effects in a variety of different domains of uh, of, of, of of life and health um, and economic activity. And and I think that you know one of the outcomes of this process will be to to look at the way in which data and particularly data analytics can be used to. Um, uh, help both facilitate not just trade, but also to, you know, to monitor our our behavioral effectiveness at um, adhering to a lot of the uh, the you know the, the conditions that we need to be doing, and, and doing that in a way that's 
that's mindful of civil liberties in China and other places have put in place in terms of uh, uh, use of technology to, 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 to monitor. Uh, but we are going to have to come up with our own formula for that. And uh, those will be different, it will be experimental. But uh, uh, And so this idea of using technology to both verify identity, but also to, uh, you know, how you can, you know, come to better uh, public health outcomes is going to be a big di discussion over the next while. Yes, I totally agree with that. You know, there's some uh, Canadian company, Blue Dot, um, you know, uh, monitors um, infectious diseases around the world and uh, uses AI to uh, predict outbreaks. And I know they are now working uh, closely with, with the Canadian government. Um, but, you know, I guess the performance of tech has been a little bit of a mixed bag. You know, on the one hand, you have, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates, who are these extraordinary human beings who not only are um, great philanthropists, but, you know, also have great prescience. And, you know, they really saw uh, a pandemic event like this coming and are now dedicating themselves to it. But you also... Um, have, you know, a run on chloroquine uh, uh, in uh, the Valley happening right now. And and what folks on Twitter have uh, described as text-splaining. Um, you have uh, some of these uh, founders, you know, uh, lecturing on math to uh, people who have dedicated their whole lives to infectious disease modeling. So, um, you know, where do you, where do you see the opportunity there? And in general, how do you think the Valley has responded to this crisis? That's very interesting. I mean, I, you know, I completely agree with you in the sense that, you know, the, the propensity towards solutionism, uh, on behalf of a lot of like Valley tech culture, particularly it's a very often, you know, can be described as a broish culture and, you know, there's a, uh, a desire for quick solutions and and often the kind of just the the stuff that the valley is known for sort of like big fast um, large scale you know solution building um, you know is 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 challenging in an area where you know public health is and public health professionals and you know this whole and and the the growth and the real breadth of the expertise that exists out there is is still the authority but one of the things I would say is that um, uh, one of the outcomes, another outcome that will come out of this is probably a bit of a restitution in the faith of expertise. And we're already seeing that with um, uh, many of the, 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 the public health officials that are front and center of the discussion, and they are the kind of center of the conversation, um, often, you know, who previously would have been obscure public health officials. Uh, and I think that that's, in a way, a uh, a good sign because there's still a kind of a, a, a refest, a, a muscle memory within our systems. It seems is when crisis breaks out, we go to real expertise, and uh, so I think that's a that's a real opportunity. I think on the the Silicon Valley side, I mean, I think that you know there are um, a, a few different vectors that they're pursuing, and one of them obviously is you know a quick response to the need for PP and uh, uh, ventilators and, and the kind of retooling of industry that, you know, your is, is, you know, advantageous at a time like this when you can kind of quickly respond, build a new supply chain to, you know, respond to capacity issues within the public health. That a number of companies and those sorts of issues 
so on the responsive equipment side. Um, there's others that are really sort of trying to get into the kind of um, uh, rapid reuse and dogs and different types of uh, therapeutics that, that um, uh, so they're, they're folks, you know, sort of uh, how you can conduct small-scale experiments in terms of um, uh, uh, looking at getting various therapeutics out to, uh, you know, in, into, into trial fairly quickly. And so there's a number of Valley folks that are, are, are pretty strongly concentrated on those issues, um, the and, and the, the the final uh, piece is around uh, uh, around you know a real sort of vaccine and uh, uh, development program that you're already seeing among some of the biopharmaceuticals here. A lot of uh, activity around that, and I think that where you'll see a significant amount of valley activity. Um, uh, is in the emerging economic response as well, and uh, and that's you know not just fintech looking at um, the ways in which you can you know uh, create greater resilience within um, the publics that are going to be extraordinarily adversely affected by the actually sort of the uh, the the so-called gig workers or people who are uh, in the in the so-called informal economy that we have. That you know, I think we're getting a sense of how big and robust that that economy plus the service economy actually is in driving our our uh, economic activity. And I think that uh, a number of Valley, uh, uh, both large companies from the Apples and the Googles and the others, but also you know some of the the, the startup, the fintech ecosystem is uh, look that could be uh, good actors within that. And that could be things like reverting the rails of um, of, uh, of transfers from uh, comp- you know the the squares and the uh, and all of the um, the providers that are working on on payment systems, how they can be playing a role, how all the uh, insurance providers um, could be you know playing their role, um, but also uh, 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 banks and, and near banks within that. Yeah, I think the the all hands on deck nature of um, of the response has really been heartening and um, and a bright spot in what is you know an otherwise uh, dark and uh, dreary moment. Um, but before I let you go, I want to talk about uh, what you described as the assisted departure of the uh, two hundred and thirty seven Canadians uh, on the Grand. Princess. So, just to give listeners a bit of context, um, so the Grand Princess was held in the waters off San Francisco uh, while uh, while a plan uh, for the assisted departure uh, was laid out, and there were Brits on uh, on board the ship, but Canadians um, as well as Americans and and other nationalities. Um, so. Uh, and just as an aside, I, I would have used the word decant, but I think that's the healthcare terminology. So I'm, I'm also fixated and fascinated uh, by language. So, so I love the term assistant departure. But um, get, uh, please tell me what, what what was your role in the assisted departure of these uh, 237 uh, Canadians who were at sea in uh, such uncertain times? So uh, you know, one of the the, the, the you you learn a lot about like all sorts of bizarre roles that um, uh, 
uh, sort of come about in emergency circumstances that, you know, don't in normal times. And uh, we have uh, uh, in our, our global affairs system called what we call an emergency response team, so an ERT team that gets set up. Uh, whenever a crisis like this hits and there's a real process and a kind of a military-like uh, response, which is quite common and it's actually a shared protocol across not just our government, but many other governments um, around the world uh, for emergency response. And so um, and so we're, you know, trained up on those processes when you, and when, when this uh, uh, incident occurred, I became the incident commander on the ground here uh and then we put together this uh uh this emergency response team which uh, involved members of uh our uh global affairs team but also you know folks back in ottawa uh that were you know also seconded to this and so there was an ottawa desk that was 24 7 on this as well uh, but we also brought in uh folks from other posts including los angeles and seattle and denver and, and others to um, uh, to you know, people up our our, our team out here, and uh, and of course uh, we had members from um, Health Canada, sort of FAC uh, members from um, uh, the Immigration and Border uh, Services for for, for Canada, um, and also uh, six members of the Defense Department that sort of came down as well. And so what we had to do was uh, effectively because of the the U.S. at that stage was. Uh, um, asking us to uh, remove Canadian citizens, um, and we couldn't take uh, citizens that obviously were symptomatic, and they would have to uh, remain locally here to be treated. But uh, but uh, asymptomatic Canadians, we we had to uh, organize a, a departure, which meant uh, getting a uh, a plane that uh, we'd actually used in Tokyo, Yokohama. Um, uh, chartering that plane, making sure that uh, uh, working very closely with the uh, the officials here on the ground, to uh, and particularly State Department, to ensure an orderly deboarding of that plane, making sure or, or that ship, making sure that uh, uh, folks were checked um, for symptoms as they were coming off, and so that needed to uh, take place with the public health of you know doctor. Uh, uh, leading that process, uh, we need to make sure that their uh, their customs and border process was uh, was intact. We needed to, you know, ensure that they were met with uh, with good cheer as well. I mean, these are people who just come off of a a pretty significant ordeal, and uh, we put care packages together for them and uh, ensured that they were, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, processed as well as possible uh, under the circumstances, and uh, you know, often. Um, these are these are people. Some of them were were were, were aged, and uh, you know who had been through a lot. Had been through a, a very very full set of days, and certainly on the day of their departure, with weights and uh, but you know all manageable under the circumstances, and uh, to to get them uh, onto the plane finally. And uh, uh, but it was a full you know full five days to do uh, one big solid days effort. Uh, to sort of ensure that whole package got delivered, and and this is work that you know we clearly did, and we sort of jumped into the 
to the fore here and sort of uh, uh, push this piece together. But, you know, there are members of our department that are, you know, doing this and, you know, who did this in Tokyo and, uh, you know, a couple of weeks prior to that and then in Wuhan as well under very different circumstances. But, uh, and, and again, you know, we are we just had to deal with a, an, another situation um, last weekend where we had uh, two cruise ships um, turn up in, in, in Honolulu uh, one of which had been turned away by f- five previous ports that had uh, 240 Canadians on it. And uh, uh, and then we had another ship that followed them and that actually was able to uh, dock in, in Honolulu. And uh, the port authorities there have enormous discretion about who's, who's able to dock and who's not. Um, and we, uh, th- there it was the cruise ship that, uh, that took a lot of the effort of uh, organizing our, um, uh, the departure of those Canadians through chartered flights. And so we're constantly doing that as a department. I mean, there's a lot of work going on uh, to repatriate Canadians all over the world. I mean, you saw Morocco this week, but uh, we've also had uh, many uh, thousands of Canadians who've been on board these ships um, uh, around the world, and some of which are still yet to dock. We've got an active incident right now that we're managing in uh, ships coming to the port of San Diego. Um, you know, those will be uh, uh, several hundred Canadians, potentially two ships there, um, and another potentially uh, turning up in in uh, Miami as well. And so all of these are, are different types of activities, and, you know, uh, not all of them are assisted departures. And assisted departures, you know, take a little bit extra heavy lifting in terms of um, the work that that our governments have to do. And what that really means is that uh, we are putting on the, the planes and uh, and all of that activity, whereas, um, you know, another type of departure is one where the cruise liner or uh, others or people are making their own arrangements for travel. And so, um, so all of this is ongoing right now. So this is... Um, um, these are active files that we're managing and, uh, you know, and so some of them, you know, come under my watch and, uh, you know, the, the two assisted departures were not assisted departures, but the two, um, uh, departures that we're, um, actively managing right now, um, one will, uh, be handled by the, our colleagues in Los Angeles and the other by our colleagues in, if it comes to that, in Miami. What extraordinary and important work uh, you're doing there. You know, I read uh, Karen Spoon Goldman of Point Claire, Quebec. She said um, when she was interviewed uh, after her quarantine period at Trenton, she said, you know, when we left the ship, I almost wanted to cry and I don't know why. Yeah, it's a, it's a deeply emotional process. And, you know, when you see um, uh, uh, Canadians who are, uh, you know, they, they, when they started these trips, they had very different, a very different vision. And one of the things that we did um, in the assisted departure here in San Francisco is we ensured that there was a big Canadian flag on uh, the, the tent that we were using for um, uh, greeting the Canadians that were off that ship. And, uh, and just to give them a sense that, you know, uh, you know, there was a, so Canada had them, and uh, we had their backs, and uh, and it's those gestures that I think go a long way in, um, in 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 these kind of difficult times. And so I think that that's those, we were also thinking about that, and you know, to that I, I give enormous credit to you know the just the hard work of the teams that have been doing this, and you know, and I say that 
you know, the, you know, I, I'd have, I'd one role in it as, uh, as the emergency leader in that instance, but there were just, you know, dozens upon dozens of people who stepped up and there were members of our mission, members of missions in other cities that sort of, you know, came in and there were, there were you know, the wives and husbands of some of these, um, some of our, our Canadian based staffs put up their hands and said, we want to, you know, volunteer for this as well. Yeah, it makes you really proud as a Canadian. Canadians are great in a crisis. Um, so you mentioned, you know, speaking with a U.S. counterpart. How were relations with your U.S. counterparts uh, through the throughout this process? I think very good, and uh, I think that you know we're constantly in touch with the the governor and his team here, and uh, emergency uh, preparedness and services counterparts here. And a lot of that is the pre work that we've done, and you know, often bring a ship here. Um, one of the Canadian uh, military vessels every year to uh, participate in Fleet Week, and you know, when I originally got here, and I was wondering why, why do we do this, and what's the what's the kind of origin of this? And um, a real backstory to that is that it's it's a lot of the work that takes place there is around emergency preparedness and sort of the interoperability operation between the Coast Guards and you know the, the various. Um, forces that we we have and we share, and uh, and and it really comes out. Those relationships really, uh, you know, get emphasized, and you know, those investments in those relationships come out during crisis periods like that. So that was that was just excellent, and uh, and it was also that you know we we had two. Canadians, and you know, one of them was a, a global affairs officer who was down here for a auto tech mission, and who just arrived and you know put up his hand and said, "Hey, look, you know, re- redeploy me and do and get me doing something else." And we had him embedded in uh, the FEMA uh, uh, sort of command headquarters, and he was sitting, you know, sort of shoulder to shoulder with U.S. you know military folks and with. Uh, uh, FEMA folks and uh, and Cal California folks, and they were uh, literally going through manifests and you know making sure sort of all of the uh, sort of technical details for the crisis and in an you know a minute by minute basis were being managed, and you can imagine you know coming down here for something you know one type of job and all of a sudden getting you know you know the the the, the kind of uh, tap on the shoulder and. Uh, uh, you know, ending up doing something completely different, but you know, he did an extraordinary job doing that, and I think that that speaks to the quality of the people that you know we have in our Canadian public service, and also you know a real quality that Canadians have with this our huge investments into public infrastructure, be it you know public education, and, uh, you know our, our public health care, and. Uh, you know, that really, those are the kinds of things that really sort of come out in crisis situations. Well, that's very optimistic. It really makes you feel like, you know, uh, if anybody's going to get to the other side of this, it's going to be Canadians. So before I let you go, um, you're the father of three boys. Your partner is a senior leader in a startup that's going full tilt uh, at this time. And to use your words, you have an oversized Labradoodle and you're all uh, sheltering in place in, in the same home. How are you managing your duties and working from home? I, I think that we're doing what everyone is doing, you know, who's probably listening to this in the sense that, you know, it's it's all a fight with the Wi-Fi. 
Um, we are, uh, it's, our house has come to resemble a San Francisco startup. There's, you know, a Peloton has arrived in the front room. There's, uh, you know, the, the dining tables turned into table tennis. There's, uh, you know, kids all over the place, five zoom calls going simultaneously. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an amazing thing. I think that we're all doing, and this is the, I think collectively the largest work from a home experiment that we're, we're ever likely to see. And, and with all big tech shifts, there's, you know, there are forcing functions for that. And wars have often been that. But uh, I think with this, uh, this you know, change in work style is going to, you know, uh, it, it's going to indelibly affect the way that we work and live going forward. And for many generations, like we've all you know, in the last uh, week to, you know, uh, two weeks have become, you know, experts on, you know, a variety of work from home technologies that we would never have, you know, been had we not had this forcing function. So um, I think there's a real opportunity as well to, you know, for all of us who are sheltering place to use this, um, this crisis, as it were, to, you know, really rethink of what we're all up to, you know, the quality of our relationships, the quality of our mental health during this and, uh, and look for, you know, moments of grace within that. And so I think that we're all struggling with, uh, you know, the impulse between, you know, irritation on one side, I can't get this done, or, you know, I, you know, this, you know, my kids are, are doing X or Y. And the other, which is to sort of lean back and say, you know, this is, you know, there's something of grace here that, you know, we need to, you know, sort of embrace. And so I think that those are, those are the impulses, but, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're all trying to do the best we can under the circumstances. Rana Sarkar, thank you so much for sharing your points of hope, your stories of Canadian excellence in times of crisis, and your optimism about the future. I'm super grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you.